Father, we have nothing to boast before you. And yet you have shown your love to us. And we thank you for that. Thank you for saving us through the message of the gospel, through Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. And we thank you for the delightful unity that that floods us with. Help us now to understand your word well. Help me to be clear-minded. Help all of us to be shaped by what you say in your scriptures. Amen. So have you ever, yeah, have you ever faced a problem or a job that is so daunting that you almost don't know where to start? I don't know, maybe it's just holidays, you had lots of people stay over and when they all left, the house was just in such a shambles you weren't sure where to even begin cleaning up. Maybe it's been a major project at work, maybe an assignment at school, maybe an essay at a uni, uh, and the topic is so broad and the amount of material so vast that you've been left, I don't know, like, sort of like frozen like a deer in the headlight, not knowing where to even begin. Some big jobs can be like that. And I mention it here because within the New Testament, I reckon the job of trying to sort out the Corinthian church would have been like that. Even just a casual reading of 1 Corinthians will show you that this was a church with so many problems. There is blatant sexual immorality. Someone is sleeping with their stepmother and no one else seems to think there's a problem with that. Their church dinners are descending into drunkenness and gluttony. Their public meetings are chaotic. People are jumping up with a word of prophecy from God. And you'd have someone else jump up with an opposing prophecy from God. And then not to be outdone by then, others are jumping up to speak in tongues. And all this talking over the top of one another is really annoying those in the church who aren't into any of those gifts at all. The church is a mess. So many fires to put out. Where do you even start? Well, the Apostle Paul knew exactly where to start. And for us as readers of 1 Corinthians, it's very instructive to see where he does. Because all those other issues that I've just mentioned, we'll get to all of them and more in turn as we read through Corinthians this year. But for this morning, here at the beginning of the letter, I want us to especially notice what Paul tackles first. Because I think it's going to teach us something really valuable about our togetherness as a church a togetherness that exists because of who we are and how we've been saved. Before we get all to that, though, let's firstly notice exactly what the problem is that Paul is addressing first up. And here, chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, take us to the heart of the matter. And look, I realise that jumping into the middle of a passage is not always a good idea, but in this case, I think it will help us appreciate the overall flow of the passage when we step back out into it. Chapter 1, verse 11. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. 
The first problem that Paul decides to tackle in the letter is the problem of disunity. There are factions in the church that have developed around certain personalities. Now, Paul does not explain how or why these factions developed, but we can take some pretty good guesses as to why. The I follow Paul group, for example. They probably developed because Paul was the person who founded the church. We can read all about it in Acts chapter 18. Paul came to town, preached the gospel, people became converted, a church started. And Paul actually ended up staying in Corinth much longer than he stayed in lots of other places. So it's not hard to imagine how a loyalty to Paul would have developed. Team Apollos, on the other hand. Apollos was a Christian teacher who came to Corinth after Paul. Apollos was a high flyer. He was into Greek philosophy. He was very clever. He was a very gifted public speaker. And so you can see how he might attract a following. Have you heard the new guy in town? Boy, that Apollos can preach. He's better than boring old Paul. I'm going to start going to his church. There's an I follow Cephas group. Now, Cephas is the Aramaic name for the Apostle Peter. The fact that they're using his Aramaic name suggests that it's the Jewishness of Peter that was attracting people. Peter was more outwardly Jewish than Paul, way more Jewish than Apollos. Cephas would have appealed to the traditional, conservative people in the church. And then there's the I follow Christ party. Perhaps this was a group who was critical of all these other groups. We're just into Jesus, not people. Technically a good thing to say, just said in a very smug, superior way. And so the church is split into factions. And you can imagine them coming along to their church meetings and they're always sitting in the same place with the same people, only talking to each other over morning tea. Over here is the Bryson party. They've got good taste. They like the way I do things. Over here is the Ed party. It worries me that Sue's sitting in there. Over here is Tristan party. They like the way he does stuff. And the walls are up. Battle lines drawn. And what started as a simple personal preference because it's only natural that we might resonate with one person more than another, but it's all deepened into fault lines that are running through the fellowship. Now let me just pause here and say that to the best of my knowledge, this is not happening here at BPC, okay? I want to clarify that because the last time I did preach on this passage, which was quite a long time ago in a completely different church, uh, people came up to me afterwards and said, wow, things must be really bad here. I don't think I want to be part of a church like this. As if all this sort of stuff must be happening, otherwise why else would I be preaching on it? We have not, we have not chosen to do 1 Corinthians this year as a backdoor method of addressing a problem of dis disunity. But it's not impossible that it could happen. What does Paul do? Well, I think his solution to the Corinthian problem is twofold. The first bit comes when he reminds them of who they are as a church 
even before he specifically mentions the whole problem of disunity. Go backwards in the text now. Look at verse 4, some of the things he says at the beginning. I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore you don't lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Now just in passing, if you've got an NIV uh, like I just read from, uh, there in verse 7 where it says spiritual gifts, uh, you might like to get a pen out and cross out the word spiritual. I'm not quite sure how you do that on a phone app, but if you can, put a line through spiritual. The word is not there. It just says gifts. In fact, Paul never once uses the phrase spiritual gift in the entire letter. He uses the word spiritual and he uses the word for gift and he very deliberately never brings the two words together. Despite our English Bibles constantly mistranslating it, spiritual gifts are not a thing in 1 Corinthians. Maybe we should stop using the phrase too. We'll get to that in later chapters. For now though, just notice the language of abundance that Paul is using here. Verse 5, enriched in every way. All kinds of speech. All knowledge. Verse 7, not lacking any gift. In other words, knowing the problem that he's about to raise with them and before he gets to it, he's deliberately choosing his words in this opening greeting so as to imply, what on earth are you quarrelling about? You guys have everything. You've been enriched in every way. You don't lack anything that matters. Why are you divided over petty things like which ministry style you prefer? Breathe in the bigger picture. Fix your eyes on who you are as a church in Christ. That seems to be the first part of his solution to this problem of disunity. Just valuing and giving thanks for who they are as a church. But by, but by far the longest response to the whole disunity thing is not so much who they are, but how they've been saved in the first place. And that's what he goes on to talk about after he does mention the whole disunity thing. Verse 3. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised into the name of Paul? They're obviously rhetoric questions. He's making the point that it was Jesus who was crucified for them. It was Jesus' name they were baptised into. And it's all building the main point that it's through the hearing about Jesus that they were saved. Look, for example, at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, let the, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Okay, now these really are the centrepiece verses of this part of the chapter. The fact that it's by hearing the news of the cross that people are saved. Hearing the good news of Jesus dying in our place for our sins so we can be forgiven. That's how we're saved. It's not preaching style. It's not personality types. It's not the messenger. It's the message about Jesus. That's how God saves people. Even despite how foolish that message might seem 
Verse 21, for since in the foolishness, sorry, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Now Paul here is referring to the message of Jesus as foolishness in the sense that that's how the world tends to think about it. Now, telling people about a Jew who was crucified 2,000 years ago, that can sound pretty dumb. And because of that apparent foolishness to the message, the temptation is to underestimate its power and to think we've got to boost it along with other bells and whistles. In fact, in verse 22, he refers to two things that were and still are commonly used to you know, add a bit of oomph to the message about Jesus. Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom, miracles, cleverness. They are still two things that people will often reach for so as to try and help the message of the gospel along. I mean, even just take the first one, for example, miraculous signs. People love them. Imagine this morning I finished this talk by performing a miracle. Okay? I actually got all of you to float at the same time above your chair and then I slowly lowered you down again. Floating in midair. And then I promised I'd do it next week. I reckon next Sunday this building would be packed. The Christian grapevine would be working overtime. Get along to the prezies. There's a guy there who's got the power of God. He'll get you to float in the air. Paul's point is that's not really where you see the saving work of God. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. We preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Getting the point, miracles, clever ideas, gifted speakers, Great music, cool technology. They got a place, but none of them actually are useful for people being saved. In fact, they can be downright unhelpful because you can be tricked into thinking that it's through those that God's power is at work when it's not. The simple message of Jesus that's where the action is. In verses 26 and 27, he presses the point, reminds them that that's how they were saved when he first started the church. He even says in chapter 2, did you notice, when I came to you, chapter 2, verse 1, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Isn't that fascinating? He deliberately decided not to be flashy, not to be clever in his speech. He actively chose to do nothing more than simply, plainly talk about Jesus. And people were saved. And when they were saved, it was so obvious that it wasn't because of Paul's clever, persuasive words. It was because God was at work through the message of the cross. That simple message that we don't deserve eternal life but God loves us so much. He sent Jesus. Took our punishment. We can be restored back to God. That's the message God uses to save people. 
Now, why is he telling them this? Remember, they've, they've split into factions. They're following certain personalities, and Paul wants them to know that is just stupid. Ministry style never saved anyone. The message of the gospel does. That is so encouraging. We don't have to be super smart. We don't have to be gifted with words to be used by God. We just need to pass the news on about Jesus. And so when you're next hanging the clothes out on the line and you get the chance to lean across the fence and tell your neighbour something about Jesus, in that apparently simple event, no less than the power of God is at work. And when you have friends around for dinner next time or you're chatting over lunch at school or you're chatting over a coffee at work you know, and you take a deep breath and you just start to share the news about what Jesus has done for you through his death on the cross, you will be unleashing the power of God. Please don't be silent because you don't think you'll be persuasive enough or clever enough. The Apostle Paul deliberately chose not to be those things because sometimes they can actually distract us from appreciating where God's power truly is. It's not the giftedness of the messenger that saves people. It's the content of the message. Jesus, crucified on our behalf. That is wonderful. So wonderful that this is a truth that Paul will actually return to next week. He's got some more things to say about how we've been saved through the message of the gospel and what that should mean to our fellowship. And therefore, rather than finish on that, I'd like to perhaps finish on a slightly more appropriate lesson given this early stage of the letter by stepping back and taking in the broader lesson that we're seeing concerning the importance of church unity. Because remember what's prompted all this in the first place? They've split into disunity for silly reasons. They've forgotten who they are, they've forgotten how they've been saved, and so they're quarrelling over stuff that just doesn't matter. And so to a church, remember, that is racked with so many problems, we'll discover throughout this year, so, like, so many things wrong with poor old Corinth. And yet the first thing that he sets his sights on is the problem of disunity. Surely that's a reminder of how wonderful and how important our togetherness is as a church. It's a reminder of what we thought about last week and how it's the church that is the basic unit of God's purposes and plans and that God did not save you and I to simply be individuals who follow Jesus. He saved you and I so we might belong to one another, so that we might be a people who follow Jesus. And therefore, anything that might undermine that togetherness, that's what Paul goes for first. It's a measure of how important a church's sense of solidarity means to God. 
And therefore, I'm wondering whether, in fact, our biggest lesson this morning at this stage of the letter is to simply capture that big vision of church for us here at Morning Church, to keep transforming our minds, to keep fostering the attitude that, hey, we, be we belong to one another. We're in this together. And one way we can do that is to just intentionally go out of our way to give thanks for each other. I mean, in, in today's reading, even to a church with so many problems at it, the first thing Paul did, did you notice, the first thing he did uh, in the letter is to give thanks for them. How much more should we? Last week, Tristan mentioned that one of the things we want to try and do this year uh, in our focus on being all together for Jesus, one of the things we want to be better at doing is noticing and being grateful for the ways in which our togetherness is already being lived out. You can start doing that this morning. I mean, this morning. If you notice anyone who has done anything to help build morning church's togetherness, maybe simply by greeting you with a smile, walking across the room to talk to you, teaching our children, helping us with music, helping us find something somewhere, connecting us online so that those who can't be here can still join in, helping set up morning tea. If you notice anyone who's done anything that is helping build our togetherness as a church, why don't you tell them you've noticed it and thank them? During the week, if someone opens their home to host a small group or if someone has led the discussion at the group or if someone calls you up during the week because of something you shared uh, at the group, if during the week you notice anyone who does anything to help build us up together as a church family, tell them you noticed. Thank them. Because in 1 Corinthians, to a church... <laughs> with so many problems. The first problem Paul decides to tackle is their failure to live out their togetherness. It's a togetherness that exists because of who they are and how they've been saved. We share a togetherness because of who we are and how we've been saved. So let's be thankful for those amongst us who are helping us avoid the, Philippians, the Corinthians mistake. I'll pray. Father, thank you for saving us through the powerful message of Christ crucified. Father, thank you for the way that you have saved us and the way that you have engrafted us into your people. And, the, and we thank you for the opportunity we have to honour you in living out our togetherness. Amen.